Brothers and sisters, comrades and friends, welcome to the latest edition of The Woke Bros. I am your host, Nando Vila. Usually, I got Big Waz with me, and usually he does the intro, but Big Waz is on vacation. He's off at a bachelor party. He's, you know, he's he's got women all around him, alcohol, drugs, all the good stuff that you'd want at any bachelor party. Uh, that's what Waz is doing right now. Instead, I have Danny Bessner, co-host of the excellent American Prestige podcast, which just launched and has been tearing up the charts on Apple Podcasts. Got to say, very proud of you, Danny. Um, and it's very timely because, as you may have heard in the news, there's stuff going down in Afghanistan. And I got to say, it's one of the most remarkable... I don't know. It's just one of the most remarkable news events that I can remember in my lifetime. And I'm very happy to be speaking to you, Danny, because you are a historian, a foreign policy expert, someone who can give us the all the good deets uh, that you won't find in the failing New York Times or in the Lion Fake News Media. So, Danny, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much uh, for having me on, Nando. Always love work, bros. And everyone should just know that Nando was actually the one who gave Derek and I the idea to start the podcast. And he also gave us the name. So Nando's really responsible for all of our, our lightning success. But uh, yeah, if you want more foreign policy stuff uh, and if you like our vibes, uh, please just check out American Prestige. But Nando, very happy to be here. The vibes are high at American Prestige. The vibes are very, very high. Um, and I'm glad I finally get the uh, the public recognition that I deserve for creating <laughs> that show, for making you making you guys what you are today. The Svengali, uh, the Lou Pearlman, if you will, behind the scenes. Exactly, yeah. I mean, with the with the butt stuff, you know, that that, <laughs> that was a package deal. Um, so, Danny, what is your just initial reaction for someone who's kind of seen the the headlines? You know, we pulled out of Afghanistan and the Taliban took over. Uh, you know, what what is your reaction to someone who's just been kind of following the headlines, but but, you know, may may not have gone deep yet? So I think the most important thing to realize, and if you take nothing away from this conversation, take away uh, only this, which is that the U.S. government has been lying to its citizenry for years and years. We don't know the precise moment the lying started, but probably at least 10 years, maybe even as long as 20 years, 19 years, uh, when they said that this was a project that could ever succeed, the project to nation build in Afghanistan to make it somewhat akin to a Western-style democracy. And they lied when they kept on saying victory was around the corner uh, whenever they did troop searches. And they just have complete contempt for the American public, who they think doesn't really care about Afghanistan, so would allow them to do what they want. So if you take nothing away from this, just take away that the U.S. government has lied again and again. Um, and besides that, I would just say that this was a totally predictable thing. Um, the project from its inception was absolutely absurd. It was absolutely doomed to total failure. It was never going to happen. Uh, the project of nation building abroad is a fantastical one. It is a fantasia that the United States should never do. Um, the two quote-unquote successful instances of nation-building that people point to are post-war Germany and post-war Japan. Those, of course, occurred in countries that had long-standing democratic traditions and that were also occupied totally by, by the United States. And still today, there are American troops based in Germany. Um, and throughout East Asia. And so I just wanted to emphasize that this was a total ridiculous bullshit project from the beginning. And anyone who tells you differently is a liar. 
Well, it's funny because we have sound from one gener- General Mark Milley who said, I had no idea that the Taliban were going to take over the country in 11 days. I'm a I'm a big general in the American army, and I had no idea this was coming because it is worth re- emphasizing that the U.S. pulled out and within two weeks, in less than two weeks, the Afghani government that we were propping up and the Afghani military, which we were propping up, essentially dissolved in in a matter of days. Um, so let's 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 play that sound now. And I want to get your reaction, Dady. However, the time frame of a rapid collapse that was widely estimated and ranged from weeks to months and even years following our departure. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this army and this government in 11 days. Central Command submitted a variety of plans that were briefed and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. These plans were coordinated, synchronized, and rehearsed to deal with these various scenarios. One of those contingencies is what we are executing right now. As I said before, There's plenty of time to do AERs and key lessons learned and to delve into these questions with great detail. But right now is not that time. Right now, we have to focus on this mission because we have soldiers at risk. And we also have American citizens and Afghans who supported us for 20 years also at risk. This is personal, and we're going to get them out. Yeah, here's a lesson learned. Don't fucking do this again. It's literally insane. I mean, uh, just to, sorry, I'm I'm annoyed, but just just to give um, a historical comparison, when the United States pulled out of Vietnam roughly in 1973, it took two years for the South Vietnamese government to fall, and that was considered a disaster. Um, 11 days, it just shows that the entire thing was a house of cards and that about $2 trillion, $2 trillion were spent on this pointless war that the whole house of cards came down in 11 days you know what two trillion dollars could be spent on one it could forgive all student debt in the country but more importantly it could have been spent on health care infrastructure um child care the reinvigoration of america's cities um literally anything else but instead we spent it on literally a project that failed in 11 days and so when people tell you that they can't just send checks to everyone in this country uh when people tell you there's no money to spend on social welfare just remember two trillion dollars and 11 days the only numbers you need to know is he lying or is he stupid um maybe a bit of both uh but you know because we have i think yeah he's lying I I think that I I do not think they thought it would fall in 11 days. I think that is true. I think they probably thought it would fall in six months or a year. I I, that is what I predict. They thought that the basically all of the forces that essentially just gave up to the Taliban, at least a few of them would have fought. Um, I don't think that he thought it would collapse quite this quickly. But again, just shows the impossibility of getting like great foreign intelligence. Who are you relying on for those numbers? You're basically relying on a quantitative analysis of the forces that are, you know, literally in Afghanistan and that the United States has spent an enormous amount on supporting. And that doesn't really take into qualitative um, assessments about the people on the ground who are actually making decisions about whether it's worth um, 
potentially losing their lives in this pointless battle. And another thing I just want to add is that in some real way, not in every way, but in some real way, the people of Afghanistan find themselves on August 18th, 2021 in the exact same position they were on September 10th. 2001 um before the, you know the 9-11 attacks in washington a couple hundred thousand of them New killed. York. yes yes but as as like sort of a macro people yeah. they, they find themselves worth worse off if anything so i just wanted the united states has literally accomplished nothing in these two decades and you know in a month two months everyone will have forgotten about afghanistan yeah. uh and so we will have suffered nothing for our awful crimes in in that region I want to throw uh, a line that you're going to hear in the you're probably you're you've probably already heard it, but you're going to be hearing it for a while now. But Danny, what about the women of Afghanistan? We're abandoning the women of Afghanistan to the Taliban, this evil uh, fundamentalist regime that is going to oppress women's they the women they won't be able to own small businesses, they won't be able to um, you know. Uh, be in public in any meaningful way. Uh, what about the women in Afghanistan? What do you say to that line of critique? Well, I think it's just been proven time and again that an exogenous military force is not going to be able to serve as a progressive force in the world, that you can't just come in from outside and then force a culture and a society to do things that you might uh, want to do according to your liberal democratic Western norms. Um, I think that's pretty much an empirical and historical fact as has been proven time and again. Uh, and if the United States really does care about Afghan women, and I think, you know, given what the, uh, this nation has done to that country over the past 20 years, there is a degree of moral responsibility. Then we should get rid of all visa restrictions and give blanket amnesty to anyone who wants to come into this gigantic country with a ton of land after we literally destroyed their nation. And I think, you know, we should care about Afghanistan, the Afghanistan people. We basically lied to them for decades, uh, saying that we'd be there relatively indefinitely gave mixed messages and all of those other things. So if we care about the Afghan people and we care about Afghan women and children, let's invite them in and give them a jobs program so that they could come into this country and then we could give them some sort of recompense for what we did when we destroyed their lives. Yeah, so I, I read that uh, after the, the war in Bosnia, we actually accepted about 100,000 Bosnian Muslims uh, in this country. It is hard to imagine that we will accept 100,000 Afghanis uh, today, a country that we destroyed far more and we're, you know, occupying essentially half of it for for 20 years. Like, you know, the just the the the, the realities of American politics are that like no politician is going to is going to, you know, bring some Afghanis over and have them move into, you know, your nice little suburban neighborhood. Uh, that's just not going to happen. Right. It's, well, it, I don't know. Only real policy response. Nando, I've seen a lot of refugees welcome here signs ar around yes. the neighborhoods that I've lived in in the yeah. past. So we should just show know. up with some refugees uh, to yeah. these people's house. I mean, it's just liberal hypocrisy. You know, it's just people lying about what they care about, people socially signaling to feel good about themselves as the country that they supported, uh, as a country that, that, that they live in and that they're part of just literally goes around the world like an 800 pound gorilla breaking everything that isn't fortunate enough to be in its path. I want to ask about uh, Joe Biden, our current president, because um, I, I found it to be a, a pretty courageous move by his part because there are no real political upsides and there's only like tons of downsides imaginable. Um, 
you know, the cost of staying in Afghanistan politically is basically zero. I mean, I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, the, the majority of the American people support withdrawal. And that's probably true. If you ask someone like, should we still be in Afghanistan? They'll probably be like, no, I can't believe we're I didn't even realize that we were still there, but we should be out of there. But no one was organizing against it. No one really cared that much. Um, so it's not like there's this huge political upside to it. And we're already seeing the um, furious pushback from figures in the media, many of whom are very close to, you know, NATSEC types and things like that. And and to his credit, Joe Biden, in his speech after, um, after you know, the, all this is going down, he stayed pretty, you know, he stayed pretty aggressively uh, uh, opposed to all that stuff. He's like, no, we're just like, we're just going to pull out. So let, let's hear a, a bit of that speech. And then I'll, I'll get your thoughts on, on, on Uncle Joe Biden. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan, two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibility on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America. And the buck stops with me. And I think what this is the joke. This is based Biden, right? I think yeah. like like this isn't actually a total surprise. If you if you read about the internal deliberations in the Obama administration, Biden was actually always kind of skeptical about Afghanistan. Um, and I think it'll take a little bit more analytical work to figure out why specifically. I mean, he did come of political age during and after Vietnam. Um, he's someone who definitely thinks more in great power rather than counterterrorism terms. Um, he's really not a product of sort of the counter terrorist revolution of the, of the post 9-11 period. Um, and I do think that there is potentially some political gain to be had from this. Um, I, I, if you think about one of the reasons that Trump was able to get such purchase on the, um, you know, the GOP was that he was one of the people who really criticized the Iraq war, you know, uh, went after Jeb Bush, I believe, if I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. Um, Your brother lied and people died. Exactly. Incredible. So, <laughs> so it's not this isn't like the most I think like it, it, we should also be careful not to exaggerate the bravery of the stand. It's not like Afghanistan is a particularly popular um, uh, issue amongst the American public. It is a popular issue amongst the foreign policy establishment. And it will be interesting. They have if, power. They have many, right. they have much power. So this will be interesting to <laughs> this will be interesting to see if this indicates uh, a general turn against a bunch of the you know fundamental assumptions about American might in the world that the United States should govern the world and that it should do so through overwhelming military power and the strength of the U.S. dollar. I have my doubts. Um, I think this is just Biden ending like the literal longest war in American history. Uh, so it, let's let's be careful not to overstate. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm just you know when, when the CIA assassinates him, then you'll. <laughs> Come back on yeah. the show and you'll recant. You know, uh, it'll be a, I'll do a via kind of thing. Yeah, when the when the CIA, you know, uh, poisons his uh, his milkshake or whatever, um, <laughs> and and when we and they off another president, then yeah, you'll you'll have to you'll have to take your take eat your eat your words. I will eat uh, my words. If the CIA assassinates Joe Biden. I will absolutely be happy to eat my words. <laughs> I, I don't think that'll happen. Well, I mean, but the the the. The reality is, though, that like the the comparison is to him with the his previous uh, the the previous Democratic president, which was Barack Obama, which was mm -hmm. Joe Biden's boss, um, and Obama's response 
when push came to shove in Afghanistan against the advice of Joe Biden, as you mentioned, like really like pretty remarkable um, was to do a surge. Do you guys right. remember the surge? Uh, this like massive increase in troops and 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 money funneled into Afghanistan to, I guess, like, you know, strike a fatal blow to the Taliban. This time, this is all the way in 2011, 10, yeah. 10 years ago. Victory is uh, around the corner. This? Yeah. Can you talk about the surge and that decision and what it yeah. did, if it did anything? I, I think it's important to understand that. When you're looking at how the military reacts to foreign policy and strategic choices, the military is actually often reticent to get involved in a conflict. But once it's involved in a conflict, it's incredibly reticent to leave without accomplishing the mission. So basically, throughout Iraq and Afghanistan, you get a lot of people on the military and hawkish side, uh, both within the military and in the civilian leadership, arguing that we need more troops and we need to basically surge. And I guess for all intents and purposes, that's not wrong. If you put 400,000 Americans troops in Afghanistan and just station them there indefinitely, maybe in a hundred years that would, you know, result in a different sort of society. But um, it just pays absolutely no attention to the actual politics of what, what exists in the United States and what is theoretically a democratic country. And what's been the trend since 1973 is really not to fight large boots on the ground wars. Um, and even though, even if you look at Iraq and Afghanistan and you look at the a number of Americans who were killed or wounded, it pales in comparison to Vietnam or Korea or World War II, right? Those were really mass wars. Um, so I think you basically had an argument um, amongst the military brass and among, amongst hawkish civilians for ever increasing numbers of troops that was politically impossible. That would just never have happened because the only reason the United States is able to maintain its empire is because it's a light foot footprint, relatively speaking, empire. And so I think that you have this like fantasy that enough troops would just end the, end the thing overnight, but it was just always ridiculous. And people were saying it was ridiculous at the time. And history has shown time and again, most recently in Vietnam for the United States, that that's just an impossibility. So again, it's just lies, lies, and more lies to do nothing, but <laughs> make defense contractors rich and uh, allow for the global heroin trade to continue um, unabated. Explain explain what you mean about the the heroin trade because I think uh, I think that'll take uh, some viewers uh, some viewers and listeners by surprise. What is the role of heroin <laughs> in the Afghanistan war? Right. So uh, again, I'm not an expert, but my understanding of this Shut is up. that. Uh, I mean, I'm on specific. There are people like study this. I just, I, I just told the people that I have you. I'm having you on specifically because you are a fucking expert. You can't right, undermine. Okay. My I won't own undermine. Show. I'm, I'm hedging in case I get something wrong. But my understanding is that is that in Afghanistan, um, heroin production has increased pretty significantly since the U.S. invasion of 2001. And one of the ways that the United States was able to try to make inroads in the country was to essentially ally themselves with local leaders, oftentimes referred to as warlords, who essentially controlled the global population trade. And this was a way that the United States would try to form alliances to essentially hem in, uh, hem in the Taliban. And so this was one of the reasons that the heroin trade has exploded in Afghanistan since 2001. And so like the United States is notorious about um, uh, is notorious about uh, essentially allying with less than savory figures on the ground if it played into their larger strategic purposes. And I believe at one point Hamid Karzai's brother was involved very significantly in the global heroin trade, and the U.S. was obviously behind them. Hamid, Har Hamid Karzai, the former president of Afghanistan, the for like our and long Hamid time. Karzai, yeah. International Airport. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, it's funny how that always that always tends to happen that the U.S. Uh, you know the U.S. military or CIA presence in a country just leads to a flourishing of the drug trade in that country, which then you know surprisingly I don't think it's a coincidence that um, deaths by heroin and that the heroin consumption in the United States has gone up dramatically in recent years uh, after a period of long decline. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't know that those two things are unrelated. I don't want to get you. They're absolutely, they're absolutely, yeah. no, they're absolutely related. Uh, and I would point people who want a bit more on this to Alfred McCoy's article in the guardian about, um, Afghanistan and the heroin trade, but you actually saw, uh, again, I believe I'm correct about this, an explosion in heroin use after Vietnam as well, when people became yeah. familiar with the drug. And then also you have traumatized veterans coming back home, uh, to cities that aren't exactly helped by the United States government. You get an explosion in drug addiction. Um, and I think you've seen something uh, like that, except maybe it more in terms of opioids in the United States, as opposed to, you know, like yeah. white China heroin. Um, but but no, also, also white China heroin. There, also is, a, white there is an explosion also, yeah. in consumption. Yeah. Both. Yeah, there is, which is related to sort of the opioid uh, thing going on, which in, in my mind is the sign of a decaying society when so many people in a society have to numb themselves with opioids. It doesn't exactly suggest that things are going that yeah. great. You know, for years, there was kind of like this half jokey but half serious thing that a lot, of, a lot of black people said that the CIA put you know crack in instituted crack into the ghettos um Gary Webb then exposed uh that that was probably true <laughs> uh based off of the you know the CIA's activities in in Colombia and in Central America um and then his life was destroyed and uh you know his reputation was completely tarnished and he ended up committing committing suicide um but so like this kind of thing has happened in in, in the past um you know the, the exact mechanisms we'll never really understand and know uh you know really well but the big picture understanding is is one but you mentioned uh um or i want to go back to 2001 specifically september 12th 2001 the day after 9-11 right 9-11 in many ways changed the world uh in 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 dramatically i mean it's 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 hard to overstate how how many things changed after 911 um and in the wake of 911 cory robin just tweeted out uh, and people got very mad at him um that you know the afghanistan war was supported by like 90% of the american public and then you know people got mad at him because they were like i was like 12 years old when that happened i had nothing to do with that and it's like what the point he was trying to make was that like <laughs> such an event created such a bloodthirsty uh, response from basically everyone in the society, um, even people who were formerly like like associated with the left, you know, who would consider allies uh, jumped on board. Uh, dramatically, there was a few dissenting voices like Noam Chomsky, Tariq Ali, all of whom were Susan just completely- Sontag. Susan Sontag, they were just completely tarnished uh, as as like these kind of insane people. Um, the only person to the only member of Congress to vote against the Afghanistan war was uh, Barbara Lee. Um, you know, you know, she used the argument that it was just a blanket kind of uh, blank check to do any war anywhere. She was right about that um, with the AUMF. Uh so can you talk about the, the those heady days of September 2001 after 9-11, you know, when we, our instinct was like, we got to do something, we got to do something about this, someone's got to pay. And then we, we chose Afghanistan. Um, and then we invaded that country and we were there for 20 years. So uh, what, what, what should we, you know, what, what should we have done? And how should we have thought about things in those days, especially, you know, say we were uh, a, a leftist, you know, in those days, like what kind of how do we push back against that that bloodthirst that that comes out of a traumatic event like 
Sure. So I think uh, you're right. There's that uh, initial response, which is just anger and hatred, which comes oftentimes after some dramatic event like 9-11. But I think you have to understand the response in, in, in a larger history, because if you think about the United States' national security and foreign policy state that's been developing since World War II, it's been operating according to a bunch of different logics. So th during the Cold War, which lasted from roughly 1947 to 1989, the United States had in the Soviet Union uh, a potential, or it was perceived, I think, incorrectly, but there's all these institutions within the government, like the National Security Council, the Department of Defense, um, the National uh, Security Agency that were built to fight the Cold War. And all those people who work for those institutions, you know, want a living. They believe certain things about the world. Most importantly, they believe that the United States should govern it. Uh, and then you have, you know, a panoply of other interests, what people often refer to as the military industrial complex, which is literally the defense contractors that make weapons. And essentially their major contractor is the U.S. government. Government. Um, and you also have what people refer to as the military intellectual complex, all those think tanks that developed over decades in order to basically allow the United States to govern the world. So when the Soviet Union collapses, there, there's a general um, panic amongst these groups because theoretically the empire should come home. You don't need hundreds of foreign bases if you don't have an enemy. So you see this search over the course of the 1990s for a reason for being for the American empire because all these people want to have jobs and they also believe certain things about the world. It's not just about material things, even though that's an important element. Um, so particularly in the 90s, you have the search, America's going to go around the world and end genocide. Um, after the failure to respond in Rwanda and initially in Bosnia, in the middle 1990s to the late 1990s, the United States becomes a defender of sort of liberal principles. Um, but what 9-11 did, it provided a really significant reason for being for all of these institutions and structures and people that I just talked about. Um, so what you want happening is the identification of so-called radical Islam, also referred to as sort of generic jihadism, referred to as the on the right as Islamofascism. You get the identification of that stream of being those movements as being analogous to the Soviet Union and their potential to destroy the United States which was absolutely absurd. So what you see happening in the days after September 11th is the projection of structures and ideas and frameworks that were created to deal with the Soviet Union being put on to so-called radical Islam. Uh, and Afghanistan becomes an initial site, the initial identification of the enemy, because that's where Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda um, and you know elements of Al-Qaeda had been under protection um, from the Taliban. Um, but you really see the importance of the, the need for an enemy by the fact that very soon after the United States topples the Taliban government, it begins to shift its attentions to Iraq. So much so that in the immediate hours after 9-11, it appears that a lot of people in the Bush administration were already talking about invading Iraq. Um, so Afghanistan initially becomes a sideshow. Um, to the Iraq war. But interestingly enough, uh, Afghanistan becomes identified as like the smart war and Iraq yeah. is identified. Um, 
the famous Obama speech in 2002. Uh, Obama was not an anti-war candidate. Obama says he was against dumb wars, but in favor of smart wars. Uh, he was against dumb wars like Iraq, and he implied in the speech smart wars like Afghanistan. So Afghanistan becomes sort of like this just war thing where like they attacked us, so we were able to legitimately attack then, but very quickly becomes a ridiculous project of nation building that literally just becomes a money laundering site to make defense contractors rich. And I just, you know... I mean, it gets pointed out a lot and it's become kind of a, uh, a cliche, but like something like what 18 of the 21 hijackers were uh, in 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. Osama bin Laden himself was from Saudi Arabia. The role of Saudis in 9-11 was uh, redacted from the 9-11 report for many, many years. Um, th the efforts of Senator Bob Graham from my home state of Florida, uh, working with the 9-11 families uh, over years to um, to get that unredacted. And then you, we saw that the that the, that the role of uh, elements of the Saudi state in 9-11 was far greater than was uh, told to the American public. Whereas the Taliban, you know, the government in Afghanistan that we spent 20 years fighting and, uh, you know, toppling and then and then and then fighting, um, you know, their role was like they they, quote unquote, harbored uh, these people. And like, I get that. Obviously, that's, you know, we don't want governments to do that. Uh, we don't want governments to do that. But it just seems like the real enemy of 9-11 was suppressed. And they were they found this other thing that no one cared about uh, that, you know, was an easy kind of target uh, in the Taliban. And, oh, let's just, let's just, let's just take out those guys. And, uh, you know, there's really a bloodthirst. Just... It's hard to express to people who weren't conscious back then, but there was an incredible blood. It's crazy. Lust. Yeah. In the United crazy. States, particularly in the months after nine 11. I mean, if you go back to see what some people were saying, just frankly racist stuff, you know, about Islam, about Arabs. And this was something that was really a bipartisan thing. There was um an uh, article going around Twitter, Nando, I'm not sure if you saw it, of like good lefties in good standing. I'm not going to name any names who are pretty vicious about, you know, how the United name States them. respond to 9-11. Uh, people could look it up if they want. Uh, and so uh, I think that it, it's hard to underestimate the immediate bloodthirstiness. So what you get to create a 20-year quagmire like Afghanistan are those larger structural forces I was talking about, but they need to be animated by some sort of event. And that event was 9-11 and the yeah. fact that the Taliban had uh, Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan. And and the thing I, I tell people um, when they when they say things like, oh, but what about the Afghani women? And, uh, you know, what about bad thing X that's happening in the world? I always say that the response, I mean, th there's always this impulse as Americans, because we are, you know, the empire and whatever, is that, oh, well, we can do something about it. We we can do something. There's something that we should be able to do to stop it. And, you know, the only option ever on the table is some sort of military intervention. And what I what I tell people is like, you, you go to war with the war machine that you got. You can't create a theoretical humane war machine in your head to then fight a theoretical war. Like you got to deal in the real world with the war machine that you have. And you have to look at the actions and the effects of U.S. military intervention in in every, like in all parts of the world and see what actually goes down. And I, I want to read from a piece that came out uh, in this week in the Daily Poster, which took um, some uh, confessions, essentially, or, or just a confessional from several veterans who were in um, in Afghanistan. And there, one of them was this guy named uh, a a Andrew Carell. Um, and he was in Afghanistan from uh, 2010 to 2011. And he was like, 
he, he's quoted in the piece saying, I saw civilians blown up. I know we used grape huts where farmers used to store their harvests for target practice. I was in a mortar unit and we used to we used them to practice dropping rounds on. I can't imagine having an outside force come in and use your workplace as a target range it engenders much love and respect. And then he goes, I had to talk my guys out of just shooting farmers because they thought it would be fun. They literally didn't care at that point. And, you know, I don't I don't like like I, I'm hesitant to blame like individual soldiers. Like I find a lot of the veterans and, and soldiers uh, from of the U.S. military to be kind of victims in a in a bigger kind of uh, violent complex. But the way our military is structured, the, the things that they train these people to do turn like turn often turns them into this kind of thing, this violent machine that just kills people indiscriminately, um, that is incapable of like nation building or doing any of that stuff that we think in some theoretical way uh, we should be able to do. Um, so that's, that's what I tell people. It's like, you got to just realize like what our war machine is. And when something bad happens in the world, if we send the war machine in, we tend to make it worse. We don't tend to make it better. I think that's absolutely true. And particularly what you're talking about here is this sort of um, total uncaring about Afghan lives. And I just want to uh, connect that to the racial history of the United States, because I think it's important. If you think about the history of American foreign policy from the founding of the Republic before the founding of the Republic, really, but let's just start it there, um, defined by Western expansion and indigenous genocide and then conquest of the Philippines and then, uh, you know, taking Puerto Rico and uh, uh, as a colony and then, you know, trying to lord um, power uh, repeatedly over Central America and the Caribbean and then the dropping of atomic bombs on uh, on Japan and and the sort of um, wars in Korea and Vietnam, it's just a fact that non-white life is just of less importance to American foreign policymakers. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that what happened in Afghanistan was an example of, uh, at least partially, of white supremacy, of, of white supremacy disregard for non-white lives. And I think it's important to connect it to this very deep history of American expansionism, which is totally tied up in ideas of whiteness and conquest um, and disregard. Yeah, I think like when when people say things, like when you tell people like, you know, uh, if any country in the global south tries to do some form of like social democracy, let alone socialism, that usually like the United States will intervene and 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 kill a bunch of people and not let them do that. And then people are like, well, well, why was why was Sweden and Norway allowed to do that? Like, why were they allowed to do that? And I'm like, I mean, you know, a large part of it is that they just you know, they just don't, they see them as like allowed to do that just because they're, they're Europeans yeah. and, you know, and from a macro historical, from a macro historical perspective, I want to write about this someday, but I think it's not crazy to view the North Atlantic world as a single polity, what is often yeah. referred to as the core. And then people yeah. who are in the core, like Sweden and Norway uh, are going to be treated in then countries that are not in the core, like the entirety of Latin America, Africa, Asia, uh, etc. So I think it's important to think of that, like who is in and who is out. Yeah. It's like Hunger Games. There's the, the District yeah. One or whatever, like the capital where everyone's rich and they have like entertainment and things like that and the stupid reality TV shows like we have here. Um, <laughs> and then there's like the periphery. And as you get farther and farther out, uh, you know, the, the people are treated worse and worse. Uh, I mean, it's it's a f stupid pop culture example, but they do a pretty good job of it, of of explaining just how empire works. Like when you're in the 
when you're in the capital, I mean, the Roman Empire was the same. Like if you were right. in the capital of Rome, you're fine. And the further out you got, the 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 more savage the occupation tended to be, you know. Um, well, and there's just very the quickly Empire. and just very yeah. quickly, there's um, a, a very good uh, thinker named Emmanuel Wallerstein who's developed an idea called world systems theory, which kind of explains this. Uh, and there's a, a little book, I think it's called Introduction to World Systems Theory. It's very short. So if you're interested in thinking in those terms, I uh, I would check that out. Great, Emmanuel Wallerstein. The, the viewers, the listeners are going to check, are going to head to their local library and and, and pull that book out immediately. Um, <laughs> and so, from a big picture, let's let's take a step back away from Afghanistan. Um, well, actually, let's let's stay in Afghanistan for for a second. One of the things that's also hard for Americans to understand is that there are bad regimes in the world um, who are, but who are nevertheless have some social base. Um, some legitimate social legitimacy in 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 their own country, um, and maintain a degree of stability uh, in the country. And I think, like uh, the classic example to me is Iraq with Saddam Hussein. You know, I don't think you know Saddam Hussein is not a good guy, uh, and the regime wasn't like a regime that I would want to live in. Uh, but there was a degree of stability um, in in Iraq before the United States basically uh, started bombing it in the early 1990s um, and then it destroyed it in the early 2000s and now is like a just a sectarian war zone, just awful place. Um, and so I, I, I want to I, I know that you're not like an expert per se on, you know, the ins and outs of the Taliban, but like, is there a degree to which, you know, the, the fact that the Afghan government collapsed so quickly in 10 days tells me that the Afghan government had no social base at all, no social legitimacy at all, and that the Taliban does. Um, and is there is there a world in which the Taliban governing Afghanistan actually kind of stabilizes the country? It's very difficult to know. I mean, as you said, I'm not an expert, but clearly the... Uh, incredibly rapid collapse. Um, I'm not sure if that indicates that the Taliban has a strong social base, but it at least serves as a negative indication that the Afghan government clearly didn't have much of a social base uh, outside of the major cities and particularly Kabul. I think I think that's been pretty much recognized. Um, the future stability of Afghanistan is difficult to know because it's a country that's really been at war for about four decades um, since the late 1970s, the Soviet invasion in 1979, and then the American invasion in 2001 have just really destabilized that country. Plus, you have the longer term history of decolonization. Um, what the, the best situation I think we could hope for now is that there's not a continuation of the civil war, that, that there's at least some peace in the region, uh, and that uh, other regional powers that are much more connected to Afghanistan than the United States ever should have been, like Pakistan and China, um, are able to do something to at least accept refugees or, or stabilize uh, the area. Um, I think it's going to be difficult, um, given that foreign powers have distorted organic developments in Afghanistan for so, so long for there to be any prospects of immediate um, peace or social stability. I hope I'm wrong, um, but it looks like a, an uphill battle to say the least. All right. Now, so now stepping back, um, what next? What 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 do we need to dismantle? What war do we need to pull out of next? Like, what uh, what's the next move? If you were a God Emperor Biden, uh, you know, what are we doing? Uh, if I was God Emperor Biden, I, I mean, I think the thing to focus on is really the whole structure of, of the thing, the the military bases, the seven hundred and fifty military bases, the enormous defense budget, and that 
it's easy to get lost in sort of these specific instances. And, and we should care about Afghanistan, what's going on. I'm not saying that. But if we really want to, you know, stop things like this from happening in the future, the United States shouldn't have 750 military bases abroad. The United States shouldn't have a gigantic defense budget. The United States shouldn't organize its political economy around military industrial uh, and, mil and the military intellectual complexes. So I think we need to uh, always be careful to keep our eyes on the prize. And that prize is ultimately structural. And without structural transformation, I'm not saying we're doomed to have another Afghanistan, but it's certainly leads us down that road. Yeah, the next big bat is China. That's the one that they're right. that's the one that they're that they're preparing us for. They're going to they're telling us about the Uyghurs. You know, I, I'm sure they're it's, it's bad. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I lived in China. I'm not like it's not like the government's not uh, you yeah, know, the CCP be... is not like a friend of um, American liberty. You know, Amer that is no, no, a fact. <laughs> and they have different. Yeah. And, and, and but but also, like, they're just going to tell us that, and we're going to think, man, that's really bad. It's it's really bad. Some, someone must do something about it. Like, we need to do something about it. And that's, you just got to resist that urge. And that's Our also so cynical to... because no one yeah. in the American foreign policy establishment thinks there could be anything done about the Uyghur. No one wants a hot war with China. It's literally just a stoke xenophobia at home. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, like, I, I do think that we also need to be careful not to say the Uyghur thing is made up. Everything that I, I know about it, no, again, no, no. I'm an expert. it's definitely happening. And it's definitely what one could consider, um, from my understanding, a crime against humanity. But it's also we have to be wary about being cynically deployed to start a new Cold War with China. When, if anything, for the sake of humanity, in terms of climate, we need to cooperate with China. And we need to make sure that yeah. there's not more wars uh, in the world, which there is go are going to be due to climate change. Yeah. Uh, Ross Barkin tweeted out that um, Joe Biden is quickly, you know, I, I don't want to overstate, like you said, the the the, the Joe Biden's uh, courage in this, but um, that Ross Barkin tweeted out that Joe Biden has quickly become um, the best president in his lifetime. It's obviously an impossibly low bar. And I was thinking, like, you and I are both born in the Reagan years. Uh, let's rank. Let's rank them, baby. What, uh, let's let's rank the presidents. I, I think I have the ranking in my head uh, of what I would uh, what I would consider. Okay, so we're uh, ranking we're ranking presidents since Reagan. Okay, I'm gonna go from I'm gonna go from bottom to top. Okay, I'm gonna okay. go from the worst to the least worst. Okay, uh, I think the worst was Bush. A hundred percent, no question. Okay, I think the second worst was Reagan. <laughs> Agreed, a hundred percent, no question. Agreed. In terms of negative effects on the world, the third worst was Trump. Oh no, Obama. I would say Obama. You think uh, Obama was the worst president? Because Ob Obama institutionalized the war on terror apparatus and institutionalized capitalism. Trump didn't do enough. Well, I yeah, I guess so. Uh, well, I, I still think Bill Clinton is worse than Obama, though. Oh, OK. That's a good. OK, so basically that comes. OK, so this is the question. These are okay, Obama's so we, two we biggest. We agree on Bush and Reagan are the two yeah. worst, right? And then, and then the question is, who's next? Right. So Obama, the two big things are he institutionalizes the war on terror. You know, that's a gigantic crime. And his response yes. to 2008 is to bail out um, Wall Street and not Main Street when he could have really redone the American political economy. Clinton is obviously an awful person individually. I mean, obviously uh, a, a rapacious person. Uh, and I think he also just abided by the norms of the Reaganite state. So well, that's what I mean. But I think it, it 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 was the it was the death knell. Clinton institutionalized the lack of opposition to neoliberalism right. from the left, right? From the sort of nominal left wing party. There were sort of still New Deal Democrats lying around, and and there was still sort of an echo of that. And Clinton basically killed that. 
Um, and, and, you know, did NAFTA cut welfare, doubling extreme poverty in this country. Uh, Lays the know. seeds for the war in Iraq with like the Iraq well, Liberation yeah. Act of like 98. So, yeah, no, I'd say Obama and Bush are kind of uh, Obama and Clinton are kind of tied. Um, They're tied. So, uh, so I think, both of them. Well, I think Trump's an awful person. Um, but like, so what did Trump do? Trump ramped up the drone war. That's that's yes. terrible. Uh, he dropped the Moab on Afghanistan. He dropped that? the, the Moab. Uh, I think it was Syria. It was Syria, right? Was it Afghanistan? <laughs> no, or no, no, Syria? Afga- in Afghanistan. Uh, so he. Oh, right, right, right after. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, right, the mother of all bombs, right? Uh, and so <laughs> mother he, of all bombs. What sicko in the in the fuck in like Raytheon or whatever is like, you know what? We're gonna make the mother of all bombs, right. <laughs> and we're gonna call it the mother of all bombs. Yeah. You know? I think so. Right. It was right after the Syrian attack. That's why I confused it uh, uh, on ISIS. So so Trump. So Trump's crimes are the awful detention centers. Right. Which had precedence in basically every administration uh, for the previous two decades. The increase of the drone wars, uh, the pointless sort of like tariff war with China. So it depends basically how people listening to this weigh that against what we just said, Obama and Clinton did. And I think in like world historical importance, Probably in terms of causal effect, Clinton and Obama had the worst, uh, like more of a, a bad effect on the world. But I think Trump comes right following closely is Trump. <laughs> and then the second best president is H.W. Bush. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Even though the Gulf War is not great, the Gulf War, I think, sets the stage no. for a lot of what comes yeah. after. Um, but he and did again, it like personally, at- just like a total deep state psychopath in yeah. a way that's like just like absolutely terrifying. Uh, but yeah. he raised taxes. Uh, yeah. you know? He raised taxes uh, and 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 didn't you didn't like fight the Soviet Union in its final days of collapse. Right. Did lay the groundwork for shock therapy. Not great. Did wait, lay the groundwork for all that war with the Gulf with the Gulf War. But Not I think great. comparatively, you're probably right. So Number Biden, two, God Emperor Biden, dude. Biden. He's cleared <laughs> away. He's like he's like the best president we've had uh, in our life. That's uh, that's the you know, and, and think about how grim <laughs> everything yeah, it's is really grim right now. Yeah. It's really grim. I mean, uh, I think like every president since 1945, since the Cold War, I mean, to, uh, the, the way uh, someone who I respect a lot, Pat Porter, puts it like world ordering is an inherently a liberal thing to do. So if you're in yeah. charge of a global empire, you're going to do brutal things. It's the nature of the beast. And so I just think we need to recognize that. Yeah. Um, the business of empire is bloody. Right. The business of empire uh, requires you to get your hands dirty. Um, and if you don't like that, then we got to really pull back the empire. And I really do think that um, the empire, the presence of the empire um, really undermines democracy at home. So if you care about democracy, um, you really need to care about the empire because it's those those two things are incompatible. You know, it's it's incompatible to have democracy and an institution like the CIA. It's in it's incompatible to have democracy and, you know, Occupy countries. Um, it's it's the same thing we say about Israel. It's incompatible to have a democracy and and then just like you know shut out uh, and and occupy these these like you know millions of people who have no political rights. I mean, it's just and, incompatible. And there's very close connect, like direct connections between what the United States has done abroad and the militarization of American police. You know, like direct, clear. You know, the yeah. use of military surplus in American cities, the increasing yeah. militarization of how police literally treat people that they're supposed to police. Direct connection, very obvious between what the U.S. does abroad and what the U.S. does at home. 
All right. Well, um, on that happy note, Danny Bessner, for for hot takes like uh, Trump was a better president than Obama, check out American. Prestige. I didn't say better. I, I not better. That you moral, did say better. I I think like you have to like which one is which one had more of a causal impact on the horrors that yeah. result in That's the, the thing world. is like yeah I mean people not people, moral yeah yeah it's not about more well who cares about morality I mean I don't I don't mean to be glib you know but like. In, in 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 when we're talking about politics, um, we should have moral convictions. But in our analysis, we should we should look at um, effects. You know, what are the effects? Uh, and you know, and do a power. That's like that's like when I talk to people about like Venezuela or whatever. It's like you do a power analysis. Like who has power? And 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 in in this dispute, who has the power and who doesn't? Um, and and then you kind of everything flows from there. Um, and with, with something like, you know, Trump versus Obama, like Trump is a disgusting man and Obama is like a, not a disgusting man. He's just, he seems like a good guy. Uh, but because maybe because he was a better, more effective manager of the state, whereas Trump was watching TV all day, um, the negative stuff that he was able to do, um, was more effective and more, more impactful. Whereas Trump did a tax cut, um, did a few other things, but nothing as lasting as what Obama did. Yeah, Trump didn't control the administrative state in the same way that Obama did. Uh, Obama institutionalized a way of looking at the world that I think has done enormous damage. The way I heard it, but again, this is not excusing Trump. It's just, again, it's sort of like larger structural changes. I mean, I'm anti-Trump. I want to make that clear. Trump sucks. Uh, he did a lot of awful things in the world, and he is not a good guy. Um, but, you know, we're thinking in historical terms here, not in like what what I personally think about these individual people. Yeah. All right, so check out American Prestige. I gotta say, like I mean it. Um, I've it's it's immediately become part of my uh, podcasting rotation. Um, I look forward to the show every week, um, and because uh, it's it really is, it really fills a hole. Uh, I know you like to fill holes. Uh, it fills a hole that um, really gives you uh, the best foreign policy analysis, uh, historical analysis. You guys do a good job of 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 mixing kind of you know, some kind of academic stuff with, um, with humor and, and a way to sort of make it understandable for most people. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just cause it's, it's, it's necessary in, in a media landscape in which we, we just can't trust the, the, even like the good liberal media, uh, when it talks about anything related to foreign affairs, like literally anything about foreign affairs that comes out of the New York times, I find a hard time uh, I find it hard to believe. Um, so just hearing it from 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 you guys always makes it, you know, it's always good. Yeah, I think the way that we've started to frame it is what if we thought about the United States as not always being the good guy? And if we had that perspective, how does this shape our understanding of what happens in the world? And so if people like that attitude, come come check us out. We've got a good episode this week with Spencer Ackerman, and we're going to discuss uh, what's been going on in Afghanistan and other things. So uh, please check out American Prestige. All right, guys. We're out. Bye.